Anyway, this summer we're doing our uh, study through the, um, through the topic of, of, generally speaking, of sin. More specifically, we're looking at the historic seven deadly sins. Last week I tried to pitch to you this idea that uh, getting a, a sense of the Bible's discussion about sin uh, sets you up to understand almost everything else about the gospel. It is step number one. Uh, to getting the message of Jesus across in a, in a proper way. So what I want you to do is to turn with me to 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 13. I know that one's kind of out of the, uh, out of the norm. Uh, go towards the middle and go to Psalms and take a left. And just start flipping. 2 Samuel 13. And we're also going to flip over to some other place. Because tonight we're going to look at the first of the seven deadly sins. Uh, the deadly sin of lust. So I will assume that uh, this crowd that we have here tonight was not simply because I announced last week that we would be discussing lust. It's purely because you wanted to study the Bible, not because that seemed especially uh, tantalizing, right? Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, it gets awkward real quick, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, so before we start, then let's open up in a word of prayer. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do ask for your good uh, gifts that you would give to us, uh, the most um, sweet of which is your presence. And we ask for your in insight and wisdom that comes to us from your spirit whenever you show up. And so we're asking you to be near us and teach us. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all, 2 Samuel 13, and we're also going to flip back over and look at the book of Genesis, chapter 39, tells a really uh, 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 bizarre story about one of the sons of King David uh, and a particular instance that happened to him. And I want to read for you 2 Samuel 13, uh, beginning in verse uh, 7. Uh, Amnon is the name of David's son, and he falls in love with someone uh, who is a half-sister by the name of Tamar. And from that time on, things get uh, rather ugly. Um, and so in verse 7, let me read this here for you. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them to the chamber of Amnon her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. That's a real nice English translation from what the Hebrew says right there. One of the outrageous fools in Israel. Anyway, now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Okay, flip back over to Genesis 39. I want to read you one other story. Famous stories of lust in the Bible. This is what you came for, doggone it. 
Genesis 39. This story we drop in the middle of Joseph, who was one of the sons uh, of Jacob, who had found himself imprisoned in um, Egypt. And while there, he came to work at the home of someone named uh, Potiphar. So start there at the end of verse, uh, or at verse 6 of Genesis 39, where it says this. So he left all that he had, this is Potiphar, in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. All right. Two famous stories of what we see in the Bible uh, about the problem of lust. (laughs) But you know, I'm really not sure that I have to read a couple of Bible verses to sort of make the struggle, to make the issue kind of uh, relevant to you. Um, Look, I want you to imagine as we start into this discussion that you are able to get into a spaceship. This is a different kind of spaceship though because it doesn't travel out into space necessarily, but into an alternate universe. You get to take this spaceship to bizarro old myths. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Back in the old days, there was a cartoon called the Super Friends. And the Super Friends had these alter egos. And Superman had a, a particular alter ego named Bizarro Superman. And he sort of looked different. And Boy, the Super Friends are completely lost on the crowd. No one even has any idea what I'm talking about. Anyway, I don't want to, he was kind of like opposite of him. That's exactly right. All right, so we're going to an alternate universe where there's an old Miss there, okay? And one night, you, you happen to follow a group of college men uh, home. You go back with them to their dorms to hang out with them. And what you find is these people have a very strange habit. When the guys get back to their dormitories, they get on the, the Internet at night. Make sure the room is dark, might even lock the door. And they go flipping through sites on the Internet. And when you peer over their shoulder, you realize that they're looking at pictures hamburgers and pictures of hot dogs and they're leafing through page after page of cupcakes. Some of the websites will actually have video of people taking cloth as it slowly pulls down across to reveal exactly what the cupcakes are, are, are sort of uh, iced with, right? Uh, they pay movies to go see, you know, pies being unveiled in front of people, you know? Now, my guess is that when you went to this alternate universe, your first thought would be, well, this is a planet, this is a different universe where people are starving. But then upon further investigation, you find that that's not the case. You find actually that there's plenty of food. And yet, for some reason, they have found these ways of dealing with their desire for food and their obsession for food... um, as being something they can't control. Now, what would you say about that kind of a universe? 
you would look and say, what would it be that would make these people be so obsessed with food when they've got food all around them for them to access? What I'll bet you would surmise from that uh, uh, thought is that these are people whose desires, whose passions are somewhat out of order. In other words, there's something going on here that's bigger than just food. Follow what I'm saying? Um, Look, we come to the topic of lust. And you have to understand something. That typically when the Bible, especially in the New Testament, uses the word lust, it's not simply referring to sexual desire. The word in the New Testament is usually translated in a way which could mean an over-desire. In other words, it's not just a thing that you want. It's a thing that your desires have twisted to be something that you simply can't live without. It's become an obsession. It's overwhelming you, right? And the reason why I want to mention that is because the Bible never at any turn casts itself as if it says that sexual, sexuality in general is a bad thing. Nowhere does the Bible suggest that in any page that sexuality is a dirty thing. For those of you that are not aware, there's a whole book in the Bible that talks about sexuality in general and the celebration of sexuality that we call the Song of Solomon. It's in the Old Testament. It's even got lots of dirty words in it. It's one of those that you ought to flip through and just see exactly how the Bible deals with it, right? But I never really understood how powerful this was until I became a campus minister. Uh, Some of you know that before I was the RUF campus minister here uh, uh, at Ole Miss, I was the RUF guy at the University of Memphis for about five years, which is where I went to college, and I went back there to start the RUF there. Well, I got to be relatively good friends with other ministers that were there on staff, not the least of which was the guy who was in charge of the Jewish Student Union. Got to be a great friend of mine and the guy that, honestly, I really just enjoyed his company the most. His name was Scott Ostro, and Scott was there actually going to law school, and he and I just hit it really off, had similar senses of humor and whatnot. And I, you may not also know that either, but I was also a single campus minister for my first two years of doing RUF. I didn't meet Ginger until I'd just gotten there, and we had dated for a couple years before we got married. Well, Scott Ostro and I, pr- prominent, kind-hearted Jewish fellow who had become a friend of mine, we were sitting in the cafeteria about a month before my wedding was to happen, right? And, you know, we were sitting there chit-chatting about this, and he was like, well, you must be really excited about, you know, uh, what's going on. Are y'all going on a honeymoon? I was like, yes, matter of fact, we are. And he was like, well, that'll be really great. I was like, it actually will be great, you know. Uh, (laughs) You know, uh, 28 years, it's kind of a long time to wait. Scott froze in his tracks. Literally, we were walking, on, I remember this like it was yesterday, we were walking out of the door of the cafeteria and he stopped me and grabbed me by the arm and he looked at me and goes, so, like, this is your first time? Now, ladies, bear with me. For a guy, you get defensive about all kinds of things, you know, and, and when he asked you that, you kind of wanted to go, oh, no. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> but of course, you, there's no way you get out of it at that point. You kind of sheepishly can go, well, you know, yeah, you know. <laughs> She's the only one I could get to agree to be, right? You know, that kind of thing. Um, um, and he literally, he looked at me, and I, I watched him just literally go ashen in front of me, just like the, the, you know, the snapsies trying to go off in his brain. And he stopped, and he goes, oh, that's right. Your religion believes that sex is bad. 
Now look, y'all, th th this guy was a very educated, uh, connected, social being who happened to be Jewish, but his understanding of the Christian view of sexuality was that, oh, your religion teaches that sex is bad. Um, I resent that <laughs> because, A, we don't believe that. B, how did we give that impression off? And I feel like for a lot of us, we have transferred this idea of lust in general as if, therefore, sexuality in general is a bad thing. Christianity teaches nothing of a sort. What I want to ask tonight is, what is lust? What is it? And how can we be healed from our struggles with it? Okay? Okay, so first of all, I can give a nice, broad, general description. I'm getting a lot of this from my good friend Tom Cannon, who is the pastor of Red Mountain Church down in Birmingham, Alabama. Tom Cannon says that our sexual lust can be defined as this, unhinged sexual desire. Unhinged sexual desire. It's the one little phrase description of what this thing is. Um, in other words, though the Bible is very positive about sexuality, it also shows that sexuality is very powerful. It's a powerful force that's working in most of our hearts. Lust, therefore, is two things. A couple quick definitions. Number one, lust is desire without a promise. Desire without a promise. Look, it is all important to realize that in the Bible's understanding of what it is that makes you, you, that is your emotional and psychological anthropology, all right? Your sexuality cannot be detached from your soul. Now, typically at this stage, it's the guys that object the most. A guy will look and say, well, you know, guys, we externalize things. What I do with my body doesn't affect me at all. Oh, yes, it does. I don't think I could disagree with you any more than that. And if you have questions about that, that's what the Q&A time is afterwards, right? In 1 Corinthians 6, though, Paul looks at and begins to talk about sexual struggles among single people, encouraging them, by the way, to marry if they're burning with passion, as he says. But at one point he looks and says, beware of what happens to you when you go after a prostitute. Not because sexuality in general is bad, but because when you have sex with a prostitute, you become, and this is his phrase, one with her. The point being that there is a union and a bond that will always be created whenever two individuals engage in some kind of sexual expression between the two of them. In other words, it is absolutely inevitable that sex is going to create bonds. There is in the Bible's calculus no such thing as casual sex. Sex will always bring you into the realm of something that feels like transcendence. It feels otherworldly. Uh, there is an ecstasy that comes in, bear with me, orgasm is given to draw us away into something that is over, that's beyond our regular experience. It's intense in that way. In other words, it feels like it's forever. And God says that's exactly what I designed it to be. Because the bond that sexuality creates affirms another forever bond. In other words, the first hinge, if we're going to talk about hinges on our sexuality, that God puts on our sexual desire is the fact that in order to really enjoy sexuality, it's got to be hinged to a marriage relationship. This is exactly, by the way, how Joseph argues with Potiphar's wife. Did you catch that? He comes and looks and says, look, how can I do this wicked thing 
against God and against my, my master and against you. You realize what he's saying. He's looking and saying, I'm not your husband and you're not my wife. That's the reason why. This is the reason why Tamar is looking and saying, please don't force me, don't do such a wicked thing. Because sexuality without the bond of matrimony is always a lie. Follow this. Whenever we engage in sexual behavior with someone outside of a marriage bond, we're saying that this is forever. But we don't have the promise that actually carries that forever through. Do you follow that? In other words, when I, when I engage in sexual desire with someone without the bonds of matrimony, I'm making promises, <laughs> I'm writing checks that my intentions can't cash because I've not pledged myself to that person till death us do part. And yet sexuality is saying till death us do part. Do you follow this? This is one of the reasons why, and we're discovering this with every passing generation, ours is not the first one to wonder, hmm, I wonder if consensual, you know, non-committed sex is really going to be harmful to us. Yes. Every generation shows this to be true. And I simply want you to understand why. It's not because sex is evil, but it's because sex only works well within that particular lifelong commitment. Sex is only and always used and understood inside of the exclusivity and permanence of marriage. And again, the reason for that is so that therefore my sexuality can be in keeping with what I'm doing with my promise. That my life and my actions are actually joining together. Look, it is always going to be destructive to your soul to act in such a way um, that, that, that is not emotionally true for you. Y'all have heard me talk about dating a good bit. About a year, a little over a year ago, we did our series through dating and marriage and sexuality and RUF. And we talked about this whole uh, issue of what's going on in our dating and you know, where these bonds exist and the struggle to kind of get on the same page. Have you noticed this? Um, I, I've been taking note of how poorly defined our dating relationships really are. You know, uh, well, we, we really like each other. Really, what does that mean, we like each other? Well, we're dating. What does that word mean? Nobody knows exactly what these words mean. Uh, and typically there's a lot of confusion in dating when that happens. When the most destructive things happen, though, is when those definitions get crisscrossed. And all of a sudden, somebody gets hurt. And I'm, this is the larger principle I'm saying. Whenever your definitions don't match your behavior, somebody's getting hurt. If I act in such a way that's inconsistent with what we've said this relationship is, there's going to be dysfunction. Now look, in a room this large, I realize that, that I, I want to be very careful how I approach this. But one of the reasons why sexual abuse among children is as violently destructive as it is is because intuitively a child knows that they're supposed to trust that parent. But when a parent or even, or even an older person begins to act in such a way that's inconsistent with that definition, what comes out? Total dysfunction. Because it's saying something that's not accurate and they get at cross purposes of each other and suddenly they, there's people that are in pain. There's people dying. There's people that are hurt in the process. Paul's going to look and say that in Ephesians 5, a husband and wife will come together and become one flesh. 
And he says, by the way, it is a great mystery because it's talking about the union that God wants to have with His church. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is there's going to be a nakedness and a vulnerability that's going to exist in marriage that is supposed to be mirroring an intimacy that God wants to have for us. Now that weirds a lot of people out the first time they hear that. <laughs> but what if God gave us sexuality to say the intensity, the vulnerability, the personal sort of uh, powerful nature of that is something like unto the relationship I want to have with you. As weird as that may sound. <laughs> God wants to have that with His people. In other words, God, sex is God's way of looking at a person and saying, I am completely and exclusively yours. Lust, on the other hand, says, I want your body, but I don't want you. I want my needs met, but I don't want you. Or you can have my body, but you can't have me. You can't have what really makes me, me in my soul. Lust twists that. Okay? So that's the first thing. Lust is desire without a promise. But secondly, lust is also desire without a person. And that's my lead into this. Look, this is why sex is always tied up in a concern for the other person more than the pleasure that it has built into it. Um, you see, in lust, personal pleasure is the ultimate non-negotiable. The person is expendable. I don't need the individual. What I need is I need my needs met. That's what lust is. In other words, it looks and says, you are disposable. You're a person to me that quite honestly doesn't really matter. It doesn't mean anything. But in love, the person is non-negotiable. And my pleasure is negotiable. When I love someone and my sexuality becomes wrapped up in someone that I'm willing to sacrifice for, I realize that you as an individual are the non-negotiable. It's my pleasure that I'm willing to give up. Lust, though, looks and says, to be honest with you, I'm not in this for you. I'm in this for me. You can see now why sexuality outside of marriage can tend to be so destructive inside marriage. Because once someone gets inside marriage, oftentimes, even though they're married and bound to that person, they're still trained in their sexuality to be thinking only of themselves. And it leads to boatloads of sexual dysfunction. And can I tell you the number one sexual dysfunction that married couples have? There's tons of research affirming this. And again, not to make you uncomfortable. The number one sexual problem that married couples are having in our day is that they ain't having sex. Literally, this has been published in numerous studies. There was an article in the New York Times about three or four years ago about this very thing, that the research is showing that married couples are not sleeping together. I mean having sex with one another. Maybe sleeping in the same bed, but they're not having sex with each other. And I want to suggest to you that's one of the main reasons why, because they suddenly get in there and they realize that because this was, their sexuality was always about them, something took over when they got married. Boredom, Law of diminishing returns. Um, maybe the, the pressing of sexual... Sorry, yeah, people get bored. Just not all that much fun anymore. Um, uh, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Anyway, bottom line is people are discovering that somehow in the midst of the institution itself they lose the interest. Why? Because they've been lusting, not loving. Paul looks and says, that's not what I want to be about. You know, Amnon and Tamar in, 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 in 2 Samuel 13, we get a chance to read this. Um, but right after this passage, there's something incredibly 
terrible that gets said in verse 15. I didn't read this one, but listen to this. It says, um, Then Amnon hated her with an intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and get out. I'll be honest with you, this is something from a horror movie for most of the women in this room. There is nothing that could be more terrifying than having someone express all this intensity and all this lust like Amnon did. And suddenly after he rapes her, he looks at her and begins to hate her with a hate that was greater than the love with which he loved her, which is exactly what the passage says. That's a horror story to most people. But why? Why is it that he hated her more after than the love that he had for her before? Answer, because the sexuality wasn't about her. It was about his pleasure, about his desire, about his intentions. Look, God's design in sexuality is meant to be something that you give to another. Something that you do for the purpose of enhancing that other's world and giving to them, not a sense of trying to meet my own personal uh, uh, passions and desires. Okay, so last question that we have to deal with. How is it that we go about seeking healing for lust? Is there a way to get through some of this? In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul uh, gives a very uh, uh, an interesting statement when he's talking about sexuality in general. He says, look, he says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving, behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now all I want you to get from that passage is what Paul says about the connection between your lust and your heart. Sexual desire and your heart are intimately linked. And one of the reasons why we struggle so much with trying to defeat and get over lust is because we haven't realized the connection, that there's something deeper going on. Look, I don't know about y'all, but when I was growing up in uh, the religious contexts in which I did, all of the advice that I got about dealing with lust was either purely um, like biological, you know what I mean by that? It's like, well, you know, you just have these raging hormones that are coursing through your veins. There's not a whole lot you can do with it, but just uh, ride it out and hope to get married one day, and good luck with that, you know? Uh, just do the best you can. Don't put yourself in situations of temptation. That's really helpful. Um, or it was either biological or people would look and say things that, that were just basically pure moralism. Well, here are the top five ways of things you can do, and if you do these things, you won't struggle with the lust. Have you prayed? Like, have you read your Bible? Are you in the Word? In other words, do these things and instantly your lust will go away. Y'all, that's moralism. Not that I'm anti-Bible reading. By all means, read your Bible. Pray. Do those kinds of things. But I don't think it really understands how powerful sexuality really is. The Bible says that underneath our sexuality, there, is, there are deep desires that are functioning in us to deal with the world in fundamentally different ways. And boys and girls is different on this one. Okay, Now, I'm talking a whole lot more about just pure plumbing for the sake of discussion. The Bible says that men, sexually speaking, tend to be outwardly focused. 
They tend to be men that want to engage the world. They want to engage in relationships. They want to go out and, 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 and create and manufacture and, and feel like what they've done in the world is significant. A woman, on the other hand, the Bible says, is much more inward. She longs to draw people into her life through nurturing and through relationships. Her desire, therefore, is for security and for safety. And Paul suggests in Ephesians chapter 5 that these two things are playing so powerfully in your lives that it becomes the very foundation for your sexual desire. That what a man is looking for when he engages in sexuality is to be the man. He wants to know that he's significant, that he means something. A woman, on the other hand, wants to know that she is protected, that she's got a safe place to love and to care for and nurture in the way that only she can do, in a way in which a man is not wired to do as much. Those two forces are at work very powerfully in the soul of men and women. And I argue <laughs> that that's what's really underneath all this, so that if I'm ever going to get a handle on how those desires are skewed to try to find that significance and find that security in illicit ways, the only way that I'm ever going to find relief from that is to actually have those needs met from someone else other than my spouse, certainly other than my lover. In other words, you will never be able to find sexual satisfaction, even in a marriage, even in the healthiest of marriages, until both you and your partner have found your ultimate needs being met in something greater than each other. We think this is so romantical, right? You know, the truth of the matter is, I just need you. I need you. Life doesn't make sense without you. I want to argue that's one of the worst things that we could say to somebody. Because we're basically saying, I have put all the eggs of my emotional, spiritual, psychological, and, and physiological basket in you. No one in this room is capable of living up to that pressure. God says you are wired for a powerful moment of intimacy and absolute vulnerability. And there's not one person in this room who's capable of supplying that for you or outside of this room. <laughs> in case you're thinking, yeah, I know my spouse is not in this room, Les. What are you talking about? They're not there, y'all. And what the Bible constantly says is, is we don't have healthy sexuality until men... You have found your significance in Him. That Jesus is the one who commands you. That Jesus is the one who sets the pattern for your life. And women, until you found your security in Him, that He's the one that makes me safe. In that context, Jesus says sexuality is not only safe, but it actually enhances relationships beyond what you could ever know without it. And marriages that have found themselves in Jesus first have discovered a way through lust into real love. And in God's design, real sexuality.